0: Let me ask you a question as you turn there in 2 Samuel 9. Is there somebody in your life or maybe you have a small group of somebodies that you consider to be a friend? Um, somebody that you know that you don't have to pretend who you are when you're around them. Um, somebody that you can let your guard down. Somebody that sometimes you can shoot straight with or to be honest, sometimes they can shoot straight with you. And, and sometimes sometimes Um, Speak into your life things that you may not want to hear, but maybe you need to hear them. There is something that is to be said about people that become close to you, that you let in, that you become transparent and vulnerable with, and there's something to be said about the value of a friend. And as we look into 2 Samuel chapter 9, it's said that one of, if not the greatest example of friendship in all of Scripture is the relationship between David and Jonathan. And we know that their souls were knit together, that Jonathan, the Bible said, loved David as if he was his own soul. And he remembered at one meeting that Jonathan gave David his robe and his sword, basically showing David that everything that I have is yours. That's how much I value our relationship. I, I think that you are that close to me that if there is a need and I can meet that need, it doesn't matter really what the sacrifice and what the cost is, I value you, David, as my friend, and I want to give to you everything that I can. And you get there, kind of the idea of what friendship looks like. We know this to be true. Friendship isn't about what we can get out of it, but it's what we put into it that makes it valuable. And if you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 20, it's in verse 15 and verse 16, there was a covenant that was made between Jonathan and David. In that covenant, the two men had established that they were going to faithfully show the kindness of the Lord to each other. Specifically, when David was going to take the throne of Israel, David would remain faithful to show the kindness of the Lord to Jonathan and to his house. But as we get into our text today in 2 Samuel 9, a lot has changed since that covenant was made. David is no longer running from his, his adversary. He's no longer fleeing from, his, from his, um, for his life from Saul but he now sits on the throne of Israel. All of the change that has been seen, one thing remained the same, and that was Jonathan's love for and commitment to David. Now we know as we get into this chapter now, Saul, who was the king of Israel, has passed away. Saul's three sons have passed away, one of them being Jonathan. And in verse number one of our text here in 2 Samuel 9, the Bible says this, David said, now this is after he is Assume the role of king, not just over one portion of Israel, but over the northern and the southern tribes. David said in verse number one, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show him the kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so already we see as David takes that position, he remembers the commitment that he made to his best friend Jonathan, and as he sits on that throne, he begins to try to figure out Who is left of that household that I can be kind to because of my relationship with Jonathan? So the answer to David's question was given to him by one of Saul's servants named Ziba. And Ziba came in and informed David that Jonathan had a son who was still alive. Now, I want to tell you quite a bit about this guy. His name was Mephibosheth. But I want you to look at verse 3 and verse 4 now, and let's look at his condition, because this is all going to tie in. And I think this is one of the neatest pictures of the gospel that you're going to find in the Old Testament, but I'm afraid that we we kind of miss the details of it, because we read it more as a narrative, and we miss what is trying to be communicated here. And so when you get to verse number 3 of our chapter, look at what it says. The Bible says, And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul that I may show kindness of God unto him, Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. We're going to come back to that. And in verse 4, and the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Maker, the son of Ameliel, in Lodabar. In verse 5, then the king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Ameliel, from Lodabar, and were introduced to his name in verse number 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was coming to David. He fell on his face, did reverence, and David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, thy servant. Now, let's look at the condition. The first thing I want you to remember about Mephibosheth. Now, connect all these thoughts with me. Don't, don't let me lose your history lesson. The first thing that you recognize is mentioned at the end of verse number three about this guy by the name of Mephibosheth. The Bible says right at the end of the of the end of the verse that he was lame on his feet. And now the, the very first thing, I'm already jumping the gun on this, the very first thing you have to remember is this. Mephibosheth was the grandson of who? Are we follow in the family tree here. You had Saul, who is David's um, nemesis of sorts, pursuing him, has now passed away after a battle with the Philistines. David has taken his place on the throne. Saul had his son Jonathan, who is David's best friend. Jonathan had a a son named Mephibosheth, who would have been Saul's grandchild. Now, I want you to remember a little bit about the heritage of who Saul was. Saul was the rejected king of Israel. Saul was the one that was serving as king, but because of his disobedience and because of his impatience, lost the throne himself, but also lost the, the line of succession that his sons could have assumed as the next kings of Israel. And so what you learn here, what you remember before we even look into verse number three is Mephibosheth was born into a rejected family. As the son of Saul, he's born into a family that is in a state of rejection because, remember, as Saul was rejected, so was his family. Generations to come now carry the title of rejection because of the behavior of, in this case, the grandfather of Saul. Now, here's the truth. If we were to be honest, and we're going to try to draw some parallels with our own families for a second, so here's the first thing I'm going to ask you as we talk about this. Try not to build up a wall as we talk about families for a minute. Because if we were to be honest, every one of us come from a dysfunctional family. Every one of us do. Whether we think that we have the, the, the picture-perfect family or not, we all come from a line and a generational line of um, dysfunction. Why? Because we're all sinners. Now, listen, I understand that on social media we post pictures of our families and it makes it look like a postcard. I get that. Then I understand that we like to project other people, the idea that maybe, just maybe, we have the picture-perfect family, but every one of us know when we're not in church and we're not on social media, what goes on behind closed doors is anything but picture-perfect. It's a lot of dysfunction. It's a lot of sinfulness that are butting heads with each other. It's a lot of disagreement. Listen, there is, it's going to be in every family because every one of us are sinful. Now, if we think about this in a broader scope, as a as a creation of God, as a fallen creation, every one of us are born into a sinful family called the human race. <laughs> because every one of us have one thing in common, and that is that we are all, whether we're from a particular family or just born in general, we all have sin that we have to battle with. For Mephibosheth, it was an earthly rejection of his family that he had to deal with. But then you come to verse number three, and the second thing you notice about this is that Mephibosheth was lame. The Bible said right at the end of that verse, Jonathan hath yet a son which is lame on his feet. Now, think about this. How did that happen? Well, during the battle between Israel and the Philistines, Saul had a, he had his three sons, they were all killed. Now by the time word got back to the family that Saul and his three boys were slain, Mephibosheth would have been about, they say, about five years old. And so to spare Mephibosheth's life, his nurse and his caretaker took him up, at that point still being healthy, fleed because they're they're afraid for their lives. David's coming after everybody. Somewhere along that fleeing the caretaker sustained a fall. The animal, the animal that they were on, the Bible says, kind of fell in 1 Chronicles. And in that fall, Mephibosheth also fell, sustaining a debilitating injury. So from the age of five years, this man had not been able to move on his own. He was lame. Losing use of both feet, he couldn't move under his own power. I'm going to come back to that, so don't lose sight of it. So rejected family, he was lame. Now look at the third thing, you find it in verse number four. Then King David said unto him, where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, behold, he is in the house of maker, the son of Ameliel, in, now look at this name, the city that, that Mephibosheth was in was a city by the name of Lodabar. Now let's think about this. Lodabar probably means absolutely nothing to us. In biblical history, it claims very, very little relevance. But in this narrative, it is important to understand what Lodabar means because, again, it sets the stage for a comparison that we're going to make in just a moment. The word Lodabar means no pasture or a barren pasture. It was a wasteland of sorts. It was not producing anything. One of the reasons you probably don't hear much about Lodabar is it didn't do anything. It was producing nothing. It was adding nothing to society whatsoever. And this was, if you think about it, for Mephibosheth, what a transition this must have been. He goes from being um, a a prince of sorts, of Saul's, to now living in a place of barrenness. Going from having everything to going to having nothing. So here's a thought. When you combine all of these traits that we just mentioned, he came from a rejected family, He now lives in a a town that is absolutely barren, and he is lame, unable to do anything on his own. When you take those three details about who Mephibosheth is and you combine them all together, it would seem like we are getting a really interesting peek into what it is to be someone who is unsaved. Do you see that parallel? someone who has no idea that their sins are forgiven, someone who um, has never trusted Christ as their Savior. Think about it. They now live in a rejected family, the family of Adam, a sinful family. They are um, lame, not able to do anything. We cannot work or earn any type of forgiveness or any type of grace as we just sang about because then it would no longer be grace if it's earnable. And we live in a city that is barren. We're producing nothing of eternal value because before Christ, that is the condition of every one of us. Mephibosheth is in a hopeless condition in need of someone to step in and do something for him. And I want to tell you this morning that what Mephibosheth needed, whether he realized it or not, is Mephibosheth needed a confrontation with grace. Grace. I want to remind you this morning that our need, either in the past or maybe in the present, is the same thing. We all need an instance where we are confronted with the grace of God. Because we cannot earn grace, it is God giving us what we don't deserve and what we cannot earn. And when you look at this story here, as we learn a little bit about who Mephibosheth is, David pictures for us what grace looks like. So let's take the next few verses and let's understand how grace can confront our lives. This is really the neatest picture. So look at verse number five. Verse number five says, Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Maker, the son of Emil, from Lodabar. Now in verse six, right at the beginning part of the verse, When Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. stop our reading right there. We'll come back to that verse. So whereas... Mephibosheth came from a rejected family, couldn't do anything on his own because he was lame, had no use of his legs, and um, was in a city of barrenness. You kind of turn the page just a little bit, and the story takes a little bit of a turn, and now what we find is David steps in, has interest in honoring his commitment to Jonathan, learns about Mephibosheth, and the first thing you find is David pictures for us what grace does in a life. You notice this. First of all, grace always makes the first move. Look at verse number five. Then King David, our picture of what grace is, sent and retrieved Mephibosheth back to the throne. What a beautiful picture of what grace is all about. As Mephibosheth then approaches David, the Bible says he falls flat on his face and he does reverence. And the thing I want you to remember this morning is the fact that David would reach out to such a rejected person should blow your mind because it is a beautiful picture of grace the fact that what does the bible says that we love him because he first loved who us and grace always takes the first step but grace is blind to the spiritual condition of the potential recipient did you catch that We are from a rejected family, we are eternally barren, we cannot earn grace, there is nothing we can do to merit or earn our salvation and our forgiveness of sins. We can't do anything about it, but God says, I still love you regardless of your sinful condition. Because I love you as my creation, and because I love you as a soul, I am going to take the first step and offer you salvation, that's what grace is all about. David didn't bring Mephibosheth in and say, listen, I will help you out if you do X, Y, and Z. There is no formula that is presented from David to Mephibosheth in order for him to earn the favor that the king is about to show him at all. What an amazing thought. And I want to remind you this morning that we are the recipient of the grace of God because God looked at us in what we just sang about in love. And that love reminds us that, yeah, we are sinners, but His love covers a multitude of sin. You know, this morning, we may not even realize our condition before God. We may not have any thought. We probably don't go through our day really chewing on and um, considering our sinfulness, We probably go through our day trying to figure out what it is I have to get done and and try to figure out where I'm supposed to be and when and remember that there's a time change and remember that holidays are right around the corner. We don't spend a lot of time reminding ourselves the truth about who we are. But I want to remind you this morning one of the most important things that we can be reminded of. And that is this, before God, we are sinners. Every one of us might have a different sin, Every one of us might have that, that, that sin that we just we struggle with day in and day out. It might look a little bit different, but in the eyes of God, He looked at us, and the Bible says that He demonstrated His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. You see, we're not here to, to downplay sin because sin is what will destine a soul to hell. But what we, we are here to do this morning is to, is to lift up the Savior, to lift up Christ and to remind you that God took the first step. He made the first move and He showed us His love regardless of our sin because what does the Bible say? God isn't willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And so when you think about what grace is all about, this is it. It is God showing us grace by what 1 John 4.19 says, we love Him because he first loved us, and he loved us enough to send his son to die in our place. Can I remind you of the verse that I quoted just a second ago because it's so powerful that God commendeth. he demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So God's graceful move was when he sent Jesus to die for a bunch of sinners that live in a rejected human family. But look at this. Go back to the text, about halfway through verse 6. So Mephibosheth's response is to fall on his face and do reverence, as difficult as that might have been. But then you get halfway through the verse, and David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold thy servant. Now look in verse number 7. This is really important. Bracket this off, underline it, or if you mark in your Bible at all, note these next two words that David speaks. And David said unto him, What are the next two words? Stay with me. Fear not. Hold on, why? What is there to fear of Mephibosheth? Why was David already communicating to him the importance of not being afraid to be in the presence of the king? Mind you, traditionally, when a king transitions into power, One of the behaviors of that king is to visit the homes of the previous king and to put to death those families so that there is no question as to who's going to be the leader of that country. Mephibosheth comes before the king expecting and understanding that death is probably going to be the conclusion of this meeting. So one of the first things that David communicates to Mephibosheth is this, You came here expecting to die, most likely, but I want you to know, and here's what grace wants you to know, you don't have to come before the king in fear. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to fear whatsoever because David's here to extend grace. David is here to overrule the fear that is in the heart of Mephibosheth. Mind you, listen, for 16 years, Mephibosheth has lived in Lodabar waiting for this day to occur. He knew that this was going to happen at one point or another. I cannot imagine the thoughts that must have run through his head as he approached David that day. I cannot imagine how he must have thought for 16 years trying to fly under the radar, clinging to the hope that maybe David forgot or would never find out that Mephibosheth even existed. I can't imagine what it must have been like for the messenger to come and to retrieve Mephibosheth and in the mind of Mephibosheth, he's thinking, the gig's up. This is it. David says, I know you're scared. I know your background. I know you've been rejected and I know there's nothing you can do about it. I know you deserve death, most likely, at least traditionally, but here's what David says. Not only did Mephibosheth walk in the room, but grace stepped in and said, you can lay aside those fears. Listen to me. When grace confronts our lives, here's what it sounds like. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The day that we place our faith in Christ is the same day we can remove our fears for eternity, we can remove our fears of, of the punishment of eternal sin, we can remove from ourselves fear. Because grace and love overrule. Here's what 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, There is no fear in love. The rest of the verse says this, but perfect love casts out fear. So grace says fear not when we deserve death. Grace makes the first move. Now watch this in verse number seven. David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Here's the third thought. Grace was extended because of another, for another's sake. Why was David showing Mephibosheth so much kindness? It was because of the commitment that he had already made with Jonathan. The kindness that Mephibosheth was experiencing was due to a relationship with someone else. See, a substitution had taken place there. When David looked at Mephibosheth, he saw Jonathan. I want to remind you this morning, this beautiful thing that we call in doctrinal terms, substitutionary atonement. And that is this, when we agree with God that we are a sinner, and we ask God to forgive us of our sins based on the merits of what Christ has done for us. When God looks at us at that that moment, He no longer sees a sinner, He sees His Son. He no longer sees someone who is destined for eternal separation. When we place our faith in Christ, that substitution takes place, and Christ, who has already paid the penalty for our sin on the cross, now we get to, re- to experience the benefits, the reward, because of what Christ did for us. Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't. That's why it's called grace. It doesn't make sense, and it's not something we can earn, and it's not something that... We can even give up our own life for because someone perfect had to come along the way and extend grace to us because we can't earn it we can't do anything about it we are spiritually lame and god says i'm not interested in leaving you in that condition i want to help re- resolve this conflict between a holy god and a sinful man and the resolution was i'm sending christ for you and so it all boils down to an issue of faith. And when we place our faith in Christ, God no longer sees a wicked sinner, but he sees the shed blood of Christ who covers our sins. And he sees the resurrected Christ who guarantees us, who are believers, resurrection over death in the future. Can I tell you this? Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Being justified, being made right in the eyes of God, freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I think in that verse, one of the most amazing words, we we understand justification, we might understand redemption a little bit, but there's a word that we can understand very clearly. It's about, what, one, two, three words in. That word is freely. Now, we understand nothing in life is what? Nothing in life is free, or you get what you pay for. So to, to finally find something that is legitimately free doesn't make any sense. It's It goes contrary to common sense. It goes contrary to wisdom that has been passed down generationally. Nothing is free. How many of you have ever told your kid or your grandkid that? Nothing's free in this life. You got to work for it. And that's right. I want to tell you this much. When it comes to salvation, that couldn't be farther from the truth. Salvation is a free gift that is offered by our creator God. I don't, I can never, anytime we come across a text like this, I can never resolve that conflict in my mind, how a loving God can know the ins and outs of my life and still say, I'm extending you freely the gift of redemption that's in Christ. I am buying you back. I am redeeming you freely. You don't have to pay anything. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is place your faith in what Christ has done for you. This Again, where is the logic in that? It's not there. But again, this is what we're trying to get to in this text. This is a portrayal of what grace is all about. So here's, look at verse number 8. And so all of this has taken place. There's a promise of land and a promise of food at the end of verse number 7. And Mephibosheth, in verse number 8, bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldest look upon such a dead Dog, as I am, I thought that was a really neat phrase. How many of you are dog lovers? Just curious. Where are the dog lovers at? Okay, I'm not going to ask about cat lovers. That's irrelevant, and we're in church. (laughs) Dog lovers, dog lovers are a unique breed in and of themselves. It's amazing what. No, no, I'm not. Don't don't give me the 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 stink eye if I made a cat comment. That's not. You're you're missing the point. Um, Dogs are the superior species. Um, I'm in church. I got to stop. I'm sorry. I want you to think about the things that. (laughs) It's amazing how life changes for an animal. All right, well, let's back that up for you cat lovers. For an animal, the things that you would never allow to happen in your house, for some reason you get that puppy or you get that animal and all of a sudden it becomes okay. You know, the things that you want to guard with all your life if that dog chews it up, for some reason it's, it's palatable, I guess, to say the, to say the least. Um, they go to the bathroom, you make excuses for them when they, when they potty in the house. And, and not every family is the same, I get that. But if you're an animal lover, um, it's amazing how those really become your fur babies, right? I'll I'll do anything for that animal. I love that animal. Or or maybe you have a love-hate relationship with it, and I don't like it so much, but I tolerate it. Whatever it is, I want you to think about this. Why does Mephibosheth compare himself to a dead dog? Now, for us, we understand the value of a dead animal but I want to take you into a kind of a a different mindset and I want you to understand what is being communicated because it's more than just when when Fido passes away. That's not the reference that's being made here by Mephibosheth. In an Eastern mind, they were not, a dog was not a living dog, was not cute, it was not something that they kept as a pet, but as a matter of fact, were objects of contempt and dislike. Dogs were scavengers. They were nasty. How do we know this? Well, I mean, the Bible even points this out. Isaiah insults priests by saying their sacrifices were not better than breaking a dog's neck and offering it as a sacrifice. The Jews referred to the Gentiles as dogs, and in turn, Paul insults his Jewish opponents by calling them dogs. Remember Jezebel in the Old Testament? Remember that story? jezebel tries to entice jehu and as a result she's chucked out of a window plummets to her death and when they come to finally bury her do you remember what was left just her head her hands and the skeletal remains of her feet why because the dogs had gotten to them. it devoured that body dogs were not pretty they were not something to be pranced around on a leash They were not to be domesticated. They were scavengers. And one thing is true about Mephibosheth. If anything else can be said about him, Mephibosheth had a humble view of who he was. And not only was a living dog to be disliked because of the scavenger nature, what does he say there? I'm not just a living dog, which is gross alone. I'm a dead dog. Absolutely no value. I don't think we'll ever understand the greatness of the grace of God until we wrap our minds around the greatness of our personal sin. I don't want to detach myself so far from whom Mephibosheth claims to be as a dead dog and see myself as something superior spiritually. I'm going to tell you this much, that in the eyes of God, I am nothing better than a dead, profitless, useless dog in the eyes of God. As a matter of fact, if you want to stick with the graphic details, not only am I a dead in the eyes of God, who is lame and spiritually barren, think about this. The Bible even says that if I attempt to do something for God righteously, my righteousness in the eyes of God are as sinful rags. So not only am I a dead dog, but I'm a, I'm a, I'm a gross, used-up bandage of sorts. And that seems like a doom and gloom situation. And here's what, here's what Mephibosheth says to David, to the king. Who am I that I can possibly be someone worthy of the favor that you're showing me? Because there's a light bulb that's going off in the mind of Mephibosheth, and that is this. This whole thing doesn't make any sense. I have literally been living in anticipation of death for 16 years because of my rejected family, because of who I am. I can't do anything to earn your favor, David. I can't serve you. So why is it that you are showing me such grace and such favor? I am as as valuable as a scavenger animal who is dead. That's because Mephibosheth knew who he was. Listen to me, folks. We have got to understand who we are in the eyes of God. We have got to come to a point, everybody does, in their life where we agree with God as to who we are. And when it comes to our comparison, my comparison is not against you in this room to determine how bad of a person I am. Because we know this to be true. It's not very far that you have to look before you find someone you think that you're spiritually better than. Our comparison is not here horizontally our comparison is here we compare ourselves to a holy God and the Bible says this when that comparison is accomplished what does the Bible say for all have sinned and fallen short of that comparison of the glory of God folks listen this is really encouraging but let's let's understand and agree with one thing we are a sinful people we take advantage of and say hurtful things and do stupid things every single day of our lives, and we might think that somehow we are a spiritual, we're a good Christian, and maybe we are. But I'm going to tell you this: the only thing in the eyes of God that makes us good and righteous is the blood of Christ that's been applied to our life the day we trusted Him as our Savior. That's it. I am no better than anyone in this room. I am no better. Than the homeless man across the street. Because we're all in the same rejected family as humans. <laughs> and for, for for Mephibosheth, the question is this, God, who who am I? Why? Why would you ever do you ever stop and consider your salvation and conclude with that question? God, why do you love me like you do? You could have, you could have pulled another Noah, flooded the earth, and tried again, and you decided not to. You offered another plan. You could, have, you could have wiped me away from existence, and you chose not to. You could have, in your justice, rightfully punished me and condemned me eternally, and you chose not to. Well, who am I? Why would you do that? But it's the wrong question. You know, David says in Psalm 8, I think it's interesting, and I don't know the chronology. I wish I knew this to be true, and I don't, so I'm going to say that up front, But if Psalm 8, verse number 4, was written either simultaneously as this text or even before, then this question by Mephibosheth is going to ring in his mind. Psalm 8, verse 4. Do you remember what it says? David says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man that you visit him? Now, if David is thinking that in Psalm 8, and Mephibosheth comes up and he asks the same question, maybe at that moment David's thinking he's getting it. He understands. Because David's also asked the same question. Who am I, God, that you would favor me? Mephibosheth's thinking the same thing. God, I don't deserve this. I I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. I am not only physically lame, but I am spiritually lame. I can't do anything about this. And, well, I don't think that that's really necessarily the best question that that can be asked. Sure, we need to agree with God about who we are, but the question that is better suited for this situation is, Who's God? God is the loving God of all grace, who though we didn't deserve it and we couldn't earn it, extends grace to us so that we can have forgiveness and we can have an eternal home in heaven. That is offered to us by grace as illustrated by David, and it's not earned. So my question for you this morning before we get to the last last point is this in the world would hinder you and keep you back from placing your faith in such an amazing savior what gets in the way i mean when you think about what grace is all about what would be the potential hurdles that we would have to overcome to finally come to a point where i realize i'm a sinner in need of a savior and i can finally place my faith in christ what are the obstacles to that what gets in the way fear of what everybody else might say, um, fear of forgiveness, that's a crazy thought. What, what would hinder it? Because here's the point, folks, there is nothing that is such a high obstacle that should hinder you from coming to Christ, nothing. It is the most important decision you will ever make in your life, and that is, where's your faith for forgiveness of sins? lest I say it given this week, this decision outweighs who you punch a card for in a ballot box this Tuesday. This decision is the most important and only eternal decision you will make. What's keeping you from it? What hinders you from being saved? All right, now watch. The story of Mephibosheth has to hit home for us now. Because we see an amazing picture of God's grace extended to a dead dog. That should be in the title right there. Grace extended to a dead dog. But we come to verse 7. Let's look at what happens. Because of grace, what are the consequences? Verse 7, here we are and we're done. So David promises to restore all the land of Saul, about halfway through verse 7. Thy father and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. Really neat picture. Verse number 9, then the king called Ziba, uh, Saul's servant, said unto him, I've given unto thy master's son all that pertained to Saul and to his house. Thou therefore talk unto Ziba, and thy sons and thy servants shall um, till the the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits uh, that thy master's son may have food to eat, but Mephibosheth thy master's son shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons. You thought I had a lot. 15 sons and 20 servants, In verse 11, Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servant, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat where? Say it. At whose table? At David's table. All right. Let me give you some consequences real quick. What happens when we're confronted with grace and we're in agreement with God and we place our faith in Christ? First of all, Grace moves us from barrenness to blessing, from low to bar to heaven. David restored to Mephibosheth all the land of Saul. We're going to come back to the table thought in just a moment. David was going to take care of him with all the resources that are at the disposal of the king. You know what the Bible says to us who place our faith in Christ? Philippians 4.19, jot that one down on, on the side of it somewhere. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. We are moved from barrenness to blessing. Listen, if the earthly King David could care for Mephibosheth, how much greater is the care of God on our lives? Here's the second one. We read it in verse number nine Grace gives us the Father's inheritance. It doesn't appear up to this point that Mephibosheth had inherited anything from Saul. As a matter of fact, we can almost infer that everything that should have been passed down as an inheritance was lost. It was all gone after his rejection, but David restores this. And once we trust Christ, we are adopted into the family of God. We're no longer part of the rejected family of Adam. We are now part of the family of God. As such, we're able to call out to God as our heavenly father, And think about this. And we are now heirs to God's inheritance. Now, let me read to you Ephesians chapter 1. Okay? Stay with me. Paul says this that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, that after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also you believed. When that happened, he says this you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. What is he saying? The day you trusted Christ as your Savior, you received the Holy Spirit. That was your down payment made by God until the total payment is made of the inheritance that you'll receive in heaven. See, I know you know this very well, but this place that we call home is not really home. It's a digressing, crumbling, sinful world that we don't spend eternity in. And so the Bible says, as as an example, as an evidence of your salvation, I am giving to you the Holy Spirit, which is kind of your, your earnest, it's your down payment of the inheritance yet to come. So the question then is, what in the world is the inheritance for a child of God, right? Well, let me give you five. Forgiveness, blamelessness before God, hope, eternal riches, and eternal life to name a few i'm going to tell you this much number three has to ring out in this day because everybody needs hope i mean if you listen to anybody that talks on on tv or online it's a message of hopelessness we're doomed this is going to be the darkest winter in the world it's the darkest election everything is doom and gloom the world is literally crumbling down around us at least that's the sense that i get i mean last night was a full moon on halloween things have gone crazy right Folks, listen, there are people right outside these doors that need to hear about the hope of Christ. And we are so consumed with everything else that we miss opportunities to share it. Here's the last one, verse number 11. Grace adopts us into the king's family as a son or as a daughter. An amazing transformation happened to Mephibosheth because he experienced the grace shown by David. He goes being from a, (laughs) this is harsh, really, if you think about it, Mephibosheth moves from a rejected, lame, dead dog of a man that lives in a barren land, absolutely hopeless, to a child of the king. Someone who literally gets a seat reserved for him at the king's table. Why? What? There's the question Mephibosheth asks, why me? Because it's grace. John says this in 1 John 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. And the final phrase, now we're going to jump down, and, and we're going to look at verse number 13. This last phrase caught my attention. I'd be curious to know your thoughts after church about this one, but I have, a, I have a theory, all right? Look at verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelled in Jerusalem, that's smart, all the things that he received, and he did eat continually at the king's table because he's now part of the family. But look at what the last, the last phrase in verse number 13 is and was lame on both his feet. Why do you think that's mentioned there? We've already established the lameness of Mephibosheth. Why why are we reminded one last time before going into a new chapter that Mephibosheth is lame? We already knew that. Um, Yeah, an an evidence of grace, a, a reminder of grace. We're concluding the chapter with the emphasis where it belongs I want you to think about this, and again, this is, here, I'll, I'll tell you this, we'll come down here and hope that I don't cause feedback, Mike. We've, we've already established this, so I'm coming up from behind the pulpit because I have a theory that I want to I throw at you, and I think it's biblical, but I think it's interesting as well to wrap this study up. Again, common knowledge, Mephibosheth was lame, five years old and forward. Among other thoughts, I wonder if just for a second, maybe it's to serve as a constant reminder of who we are before God. Maybe, maybe there was to be a reminder that, yeah, you are enjoying a relationship with the king because the king extended to you grace, but don't ever forget who you are, Mephibosheth. You're a, a sinner who is the recipient of the grace of God that was totally undeserved by you. I mean, for 16 years for crying out loud, you thought death was right around the corner. Now look at where you're at. Don't forget your lameness. Grace walked in. And I'll tell you this much, when we understand what grace is about, it keeps us humble. It gives us a proper biblical perspective of who we are in the eyes of God. Now, I want to tell you this, we live in a world who is spiritually lame and unable to do anything to earn or to merit the forgiveness of sin from God on their own. And the troubling thing, I will tell you this, just this week, an article was sent to me about churches, first of all, that are shutting their doors because of a pandemic, not to mention, one in five were already shutting in our nation before the pandemic. But there was an article that was written, and I, and I close with this, I, I should have brought it in with me, that said the number one way a church can continue to have impact on their community, guess what? This is going to be radical, you're not going to like me, half of you are going to leave the church after this sharing Christ. Go figure, right? The number one way a church survives a pandemic, the number one way a church survives, period, is when Christians understand who they were in the eyes of God as recipients of grace, and then as messengers, they go and they tell other lame people not about how good they are and how holy they are as Christians. They go and they meet somebody Face-to-face, they share with them Christ, and they say, listen, this is what happened to me, and it could be the same story about you. (laughs) And so here's where I I punt. (laughs) I'm going to put the ball in your possession and tell you this, folks. I'm not so much worried about Ashland as I am a soul. And I'm going to tell you this, that when one in five churches were already shutting their doors... And when that, that statistic, and obviously we're not through the whole situation, so we don't have viable statistics to base this on, but when that number is steadily increasing and we sit here and we scratch our heads, and I'm telling you right now, conferences are already being held on how to survive a, a pandemic as a church because somehow they know when we're not already through one yet, uh, how do you prove something that we haven't been through? Here's what it comes back to, the baseline... The solution is sharing Christ. Well, can I I give you just a simple reminder? That commission has never changed for almost 2,000 years, if not more. That groundbreaking, radical thought of telling others about the grace of God has always been something believers have been commissioned towards, but for some reason, for some reason, we are lacking in that area. We struggle with that, for crying out loud. Um, we can talk about the Bengals and the pathetic nature of that team for hours, but when it comes to telling somebody about the grace of Christ, what is it going to take for us to understand that it is our job to share with somebody about the grace of God that can change their lives eternally? And sometimes you want to find a wall and bang your head, and because the message has not changed, for centuries. And the thing is, you can't fault the lame world for being lame. But I'll tell you where the responsibility lies. It sits on the shoulders of Christians who can offer a healing, yet we don't. You know, as much as grace doesn't make sense to us, not sharing Christ makes about as much sense in the eyes of God doesn't make any. Church, listen to me very careful. I get it. We were talking about the, the trick-or-treat thing last night. It's late, I'm sorry. We were talking about the trick-or-treat thing last night, and at least in this area, it was pretty dead around here last night. Had a good time hanging out at the fire, passing out candy and, and to the kids that came, but it was pretty, pretty slow. And we made the statement right before service began that I don't think this year can be the baseline to compare anything, because this year is just, it's such a wash. Everything's unusual. Everything's turned upside down. Uh, We can't base or compare anything to this year because it's so weird. It's so unusual. I understand that things are unusual and I understand that wisdom has to be applied to our involvement especially as it pertains to coming out in public. And listen, some of you might ought to stay home. I hate to say that, but some of you might be better served being at home to protect yourself. And others of us are are becoming a little bit too comfortable with our lack of engagement for Christ. That I'm afraid there are people that are not hearing about the grace of God because we aren't sharing it. Church, listen to me. Again, this is not a motivational speech for the church this is a commissional speech that christ gave us at the end of the book of matthew you're going to walk out here to our own Lodabar, a city that is not doing a whole lot eternally a city that needs to hear about christ and the only the only voice piece that god has more or less is us what's it going to take for us to get involved and get engaged with people again